Welcome to Check Yourself, a health and wellness podcast brought to you by the Community Health Education Center, or CHECK, at Salem Health Hospital. My name is Leah Burkhart, and I'm a community health educator and this episode's host. Today, I'll be talking about a newly coined term, pandemic flux syndrome. In essence, it's an attempt to explain why so many of us are feeling all the things. Anxious one minute, apathetic the next, hopeful on Monday, and hopeless on Tuesday. And on the whole, just feeling really, really tired. And I want to bring up a few things that we can do in order to hopefully reduce our suffering and move us from that tired but wired conundrum to something that resembles being more alert but at ease. So with that, let us begin. Okay, so Charles Dickens is famously quoted having written, it was the best of times, it was the worst of times. It was the age of wisdom. It was the age of foolishness. It was the epic of belief. It was the epic of incredulity. It was the season of light. It was the season of darkness. It was the spring of hope. It was the winter of despair. He wrote that in 1859 in his book, A Tale of Two Cities, but he may as well have been talking about how many of us are feeling here and now in 2021. The thing is, what I'm mostly hearing from a lot of people in today's time is not a a, a persistent sense that everything is terrible and horrible and hopeless all the time, any more than what I'm hearing is a sense of hopefulness, of it's going to get better soon, of optimism. What's really seeming to kind of throw people off right now is the weird way in which our emotions seem to be kind of pendulum swinging in really extreme ways back and forth, and in even some cases feeling both at exactly the same time. And what that's leading so many people to is, as you would imagine, exhaustion, Uh, just a sense of like, I, I can't get a handle on this thing. You know, there's something, there's a special kind of fear or terror even that can come about when the way that we're feeling doesn't really align with the circumstances that we're in. So a really great example of how this might unfold is when you're talking to someone who has severe depression, but whose life is materially okay. You know, they have a roof over their head and they have food in their refrigerator and they have a steady income. There's there's nothing materially threatening their livelihood in any way and yet there's this depression that can be a special kind of trouble a special type of again terror that comes online because there's this incongruity I the things that I'm feeling aren't matching my circumstances so what's going on what's wrong with me and I I really wanted to kind of tease a lot of this out because this is confusing so many people this pendulum swinging experience And it turns out there's a number of very intelligent people, uh, far smarter than myself, who have done a significant amount of work on all of this. And I wanted to share, first, what is it that's happening? Primarily so that we can all take a breath and, I guess, see 
uh, feel in our own bones that it's really okay. We're not alone in this. If you're feeling crazy, you're probably not crazy. You're probably a sane person living in a crazy world and just doing the best you can. And your system isn't unreliable and crazy. Your nervous system, your hormone system, it's, it's not malfunctioning. It's just trying desperately to function in a world it wasn't designed for. So I'll talk a little bit about what the research suggests is happening. And then from there, kind of go into what that's led us to. So what is it that's going on in in sort of systemically with our, our bodies? Why is it that we respond the way that we respond? And then what can we do about it? Can we reduce our suffering? Like Maybe we can't change the world, but can we change something about the way we take care of ourselves so that we are better equipped to navigate this crazy world? And so that's just kind of giving you the flow of how we'll be going through this. So to begin with, this whole, the, the, the inspiration for this episode is coming from research that was done by Dr. Cuddy. So um, Amy Cuddy, she and her colleague, Jill Ellen Riley wrote an article in the Washington Post. It was in August, and the title was something like, you know, why this part of the pandemic is makes us so anxious. And in the article, she describes this phenomenon called pandemic flux syndrome. And, you know, she makes a point to say that it's not as though this is in the DSM textbook, which is a psychology book that sort of a, a mass of all of the diagnoses, but rather it's something that's being used newly being used as a way to describe some of our experiences on a macro level. And so uh, after that article, she, of course, was, you know, pulled into a number of interviews and podcasts, one of which was Brene Brown's podcast, another researcher, Dr. Brene Brown, a uh, PhD in social work. So the two get to talking and they they start to try and tease some of these things out. And it's like, all right, so what is going on? And so What Amy Cuddy, Dr. Amy Cuddy, describes is on the one hand, experiencing sort of blunt emotions, spikes in anxiety, um, depression, and then it's mixed with this desire to change something about your life. This is what she's talking about as what's called pandemic flux syndrome. And by the way, if you want to listen to her speak on the podcast with Brene Brown, I have put that link in the show notes. Highly recommend it. A couple of brilliant researchers talking about how to navigate tough times. I'm into it. Anyway, what they both kind of tease out here is first, what, you know, they they talk about what's going on in the world and why it's so new to our systems. And then kind of going from there to describe this is why our systems are responding the way they do. But before I go too deep into that arena, I actually want to pause and back way up and bring in a new researcher, a different researcher rather. So to begin with, I want to talk a little bit about what emotions are, because I think that backstory is going to be really helpful as we tease out, you know, why is it that we're in this ambivalence, this state of depression meets anxiety meets wanting to revolutionize our lives. Uh, I want to talk a little bit about what emotions are, why our brains navigate the way they do, and then from there, come back and talk about this whole pandemic flux syndrome. So to begin, 
How Emotions Are Made. This is now work from uh, Dr. Lisa Feldman Barrett. She wrote a book called How Emotions Are Made, and she's written a few follow-up books after that fact. Uh, she's been invited on numerous podcast episodes with a number of people because they're all fascinated by her work. And she's kind of a pioneer in the field of the study of emotions. So she has a, uh, she's a neuroscientist as well as a psychologist. She, in her graduate years, were, she was studying emotions and why it is that we respond the way we do. And she was trying to get a fingerprint of emotions, to kind of get a sense of, well, what is it that's universal about an emotional experience that any human on the planet might have? Turns out, what she discovered was, there is no such thing as a universal emotion. <laughs> so here's what Lisa Feldman Barrett has to say about emotions. Basically, emotions don't exist in the tangible sense. So it's not like, um, I don't even know, like tree, a very tangible thing. I can point to a tree. I can say that's a tree. Um, arm, I can point to an arm and say we are calling this an arm. Emotions don't work quite the same way, although we used to think they did. So we used to think that there was maybe a kind of fingerprint. If you were to scan any person's brain at any given time and ask them how they're feeling, and if they said, I'm feeling sad, you could look at their brain and you could track that and say, yep, your brain says you're sad. You're absolutely right. But it turns out that's not how emotions work at all. Emotions are just concepts that we kind of made up. And when I say a concept that we made up, I don't mean that they're, they don't exist um, in the sense that they're not valid. Here's a better way. She uses this analogy, which I think is super useful. Uh, a hammer, a screwdriver, a what else? Tape measure. Each of these things exists. Like I can pull up a tape measure and say, this is a tape measure. I can pull up a hammer and say, hammer. But tool, the word tool, that, that doesn't exist in the tangible material sense. I can't say tool and have 50 different people all conjure an image of the same thing. If I say hammer, chances are they'll probably, every, like 50 different people will all come up with the same image in their brain. Hammer. Tool is a concept that we made up that allowed us to create a category that could include hammer, tape measure, screwdriver. We do all kind we do this with all kinds of stuff. So for example, animal. Well, animal is a concept and we can umbrella underneath animal all kinds of other animals. So this is something kind of neat that human brains do. Not all brains of all species can do this thing. And emotions are just one more example. So what Barrett says is that our emotions are really just sensations, an amalgamation of sensations that we pick up on using, in case you want a, a Jeopardy word, using a, a process called interoception, if you want to sound, you know, like maybe a trivia or something. Interoception is uh, when you're going inside of your body and trying to interpret the sensations you're feeling, then you're engaged in interoception. You're sort of like, I feel some things. What do I think that is? <laughs> Why do I think that's happening? Uh, that's interoception. So here's an example of how this can get real murky real fast. Let's say that I'm feeling butterflies in my stomach. I'm feeling some perspiration. So my, like there's some sweat beads that are going down my little forehead. Uh, my, my heart is beating rapidly. 
If I only give you that information, what emotion do you think I'm probably feeling? I'm just going to pause. Just think of one. And now I'm going to give you a little bit more information. Imagine that I'm, I've been in line for a roller coaster ride that I just cannot wait to get on. And finally, it's my turn. I'm sitting in the seat. I've got the seatbelt on and I'm waiting for them to release me. Now, what emotion do you think I'm feeling? Now I'm going to rewind. Imagine instead that I'm going to give a live presentation to a thousand people and I don't like public speaking. Now, what emotion am I feeling? So in the first context, that rapid heart rate, the sweat that's kind of going down my forehead, the uh, butterflies in my stomach was excitement. It was um, anticipation. In the second, it was probably nervousness or perhaps even terror. Two completely different emotions with exactly the same sensations. So this is what Lisa Feldman Barrett brings to the table. She says, our emotions are just concepts we make up to describe our experience using context. So you can't have an emotion without context. This is true even with expressions, like on our faces. We used to think that there was a universal expression for sadness and a universal expression for joy, but there isn't. Some people laugh when they're sad. Some people cry when they're happy. Some people frown when they're simply concentrating, or they might even frown when they're interested. We don't have a universal fingerprint for any given emotion that we might be feeling. In addition to this, so again, we're just doing some backstory here. Dr. Barrett also discusses how our brains function, or rather what its function is. So what she says is our brains are basically really masterful budget machines. And what they're perpetually doing is looking at our environment, going into our memory, so our past experiences, and trying to see if there's anything we've already experienced that can speak to what our environment is calling for us to do right now. So let's see if I'm about to give a speech to a live audience. Have I ever done anything like that in the past? How did that go in the past? And maybe I've had some really positive experiences with public speaking, such that even if I'm feeling nervous, I can do up, you know, get up and do the thing, and I kind of have a sense for what I should be doing. Maybe another example would be if I'm about to go do a workout, so I'm going to go exercise. I can go into, my, my brain kind of goes into the past and gets a sense of, well, how much do I think I'm going to need to budget for this thing I'm about to embark on? And it does that based on any past experience we've had that can give insight for our brains to think, how many resources am I probably going to need to encounter this thing that I'm about to engage in? And then, so it looks at our present day environment, goes into our memory to see if we've got anything that can speak to that, any experience we've already had, and then it tries to project the likely outcome that's coming up moving forward. So I come up to the edge of the curb, I stop, I look both ways, I'm going into my, the, my past experiences with coming up to the curb, and I think, okay, <laughs> I, I see a car that's about to come, and I'm going to make a projection into the future of what's likely going to happen if that car were to come, like at, 
kind of getting a guess of how fast the car is going. I'm kind of thinking, okay, the car's going pretty fast. I probably won't be able to get across the street in time. I'm going to wait. So it's a really simple thing in our experience, but it's a sophisticated mechanism that our brain is using. It's budgeting all the time. It's constantly going into the past to think, do we have anything back there that can speak to what I think this will cost me? And then trying to make a prediction about what's coming up next. Given what I know and what I've experienced in the past, what experiences have I already had that are applicable to this situation? And what is the likely amount of resources, so energy, that I'm going to be able, I'm going to need to get through this upcoming event? Again, neat trick. Here now, having said all of that, Now we're going to put all of that information in the context of this pandemic. So first, remember when I said that we have brains that are just budget-making machines and that emotions are just sensations? Well, if you've got a brain that's desperately going into your past, trying to figure out what we've experienced that can speak to this environment, you probably aren't going to come up with a whole lot. We don't have a lot of experience with pandemics of this size. The last time we had something that was even close was 1918. So, yeah. <laughs> like, um, how and most of us weren't around in 1918. So we don't have a really well-flushed-out budget. Our brains can't go back in the past and make uh, reasonable predictions. But it's trying. Our brains are really, really trying. And so then this perpetual, well, is there anything? No, not yet. Going back and forth. Memory prediction, memory prediction. It's exhausting our brains. All of our resources are getting tapped out because it takes a lot of energy to be making all of these predictions. And when you're having to perpetually exert that much energy just to navigate your world, that's exhausting. And we'll talk a little bit about the whole burnout part of this in a minute, but just to kind of give you again the backstory. And this is part of why so many of us in our present day circumstances are, are kind of, there's this ambivalence, there's this pendulum swing. So she talks about how, perfect example, um, in June of 2021, so the Delta variant hasn't come on the center stage yet, 52% of Americans were thriving in June based on polling. So take that how you will. But that's one of the highest percentage points we've had in a long time, according to Amy Cuddy. So we were feeling good. Then July 4th comes along. And for better or worse, it kind of unofficially marks the beginning of full-fledged summer. Like for many Americans, at least, on July 4th, we think, all right, yeah, June is kind of summerish, but July, it's serious. This, this just got real. It's summer now. And there was a sense that this would represent a turning point problem is that it didn't it didn't happen because then we got the delta variant and you know so we went from this place of okay we're, we're coming on the other side of this you know we've got vaccines that are coming out and they seem to be working fairly well and beyond that the virus starts to be kind of de- declining in general and you know we're, we're opening up some of the schools and some of these places in our lives and okay it's coming it's coming and wah, wah. Delta variant comes online. We start shutting things down as fast as we were opening them up. And you have this really uh, sort of discombobulated experience of like, 
almost like when you're, you're going 60 miles an hour and someone ahead of you stops their car quickly and then you have to you know, press on your brakes. Like That's it's hard on the body. And this, again, this is still uh, Dr. Cuddy talking. She talks about how in most crises, there's three phases. There's emergency, regression, and rebuild. And here's what I cued into, you know, and I thought was very interesting. In the emergency phase of any crisis, our bodies, our systems are actually, interestingly, wired pretty well to handle emergencies. So we get this surge capacity, a sense of shared goals. We're all on the same page. We're going to get through this together. And ironically, in the emergency phase of a crisis, a lot of people will report feeling more creative, more productive, in some cases even more hopeful. There might even be more cohesion, uh, more willingness to let go of uh, previously clung to labels. So a potentially good example of this would be like a hurricane that hits a community and you see both reds and blues, assuming this is the U.S., uh, working together for a common purpose, i.e. To, to save lives and to get people to safety. For that moment in this emergency phase of a crisis, people let go of their their tribal uh, temptation, like those tribal boxes in favor of trying to serve a larger purpose. So it can feel invigorating. It can feel inspiring. Then, if the crisis goes on long enough, we regress toward things that make us feel more comfortable, more safe, uh, feel less powerless. So, you know, this is sort of the difference between when you initially go out as a soldier. As this, soldiers are great examples here. You know, your, your first battle and you go out and there's an emergency and you have, you know, the, the soldiers are working together. They have cohesion. They have a sense of shared purpose. They're trying to get one another out of a really tricky situation and they... Come what may, they do. They survive. They get through it. Whew. You take a breath. But then you have, that's the battle. Then you have a war that just keeps going and going and going and going. And so there's this sense of, oh, this wasn't just one battle that I had to navigate. This thing is going to go on for a while. And from there, we go into this regression. So there's less of a willingness to work together with others. We go back to our tribal boxes. Um, we want to retreat into the things we know and want. we want control. We want a sense of understanding. So this is the phase in a crisis when we feel like we're, we're desperate to have some control and some agency, but we can't have either. It's clear we have no idea what's coming up next. We've lost a lot of power in the tangible sense, and we've lost our personal sense of power, as in our ability to navigate things. So it's, on the one hand, I objectively feel powerless. I don't know what to do. And I also feel like I've lost my personal sense of capacity to deal with these challenging circumstances. I'm less vital. I'm less, I'm not my best self. And then the third phase is rebuild. And rebuild is where you start to kind of come on the other side of the thing you're looking around and seeing the wreckage, the damage, and you're thinking, okay, let's roll up our sleeves. Let's get to work. We're going to make it happen. And so this was part of what happened with this pandemic. 
we had the emergency phase, you know, everyone and their mother getting on Zoom and doing Zoom meetings and feeling creative and getting nimble and learning different ways to do the same work we've always done while, you know, keeping ourselves as safe as we know how. And you saw a lot of people come together. You saw a lot of people uh, give. There was a lot of generosity. And then there was not that. <laughs> you had a lot of people retreating. You had a lot of disagreement about the, the extent of the problem, what the biggest problems were. You had a lot of, uh, I guess, like going back into that political divide. So there was a brief moment of like, we're in this together. And then, uh, oh, just kidding. No, we're not. <laughs> My people versus your people. In June of 2021, there was a real sense that we might be moving into the rebuild phase. We were kind of gathering our resources to think, all right, school's about to open. We're going to start getting down. The, you know, the masks are coming down and the, the barriers are coming down and the, the shutdowns are going to stop and we're going to start to go back to some semblance of normalcy. And then comes July and then comes August. So this whiplash experience is you know, disconcerting, it's, it's confusing, it's exhausting. And so that is what led to, like on the one hand, you had people feeling on the whole pretty optimistic. So in July of 2021, 62% of people were worried about the Delta variant. And also 60% of people felt optimistic. So you've got both and. I am both hopeful and terrified and vacillating between them back and forth and back and forth and back and forth. Uh, and in the midst of all of this, there was this hunger to reinvent, to renew, to escape. And so Dr. Cuddy talks quite a bit about how, you know, it, whatever your natural tendencies are when facing difficult circumstances, we retreat into those patterns. So some people, when they're navigating tough times, are more likely to go toward anxiety and others are more likely to go toward, toward depression. And of course, there's often some combination of both of these things, but I just mean on the whole. So anxious folks were more likely to want to reinvent, get a new tattoo, escape. I just want to get out of here. I'm so tired of this. I, I can't deal with this anymore. And then the more depressed folks just wanted to close the blinds retreat, have some isolation, have some privacy, close down, get under a weighted blanket. And those were the folks who were, if the anxious folks were, I just can't even, I need to get out of here. The depressed folks were, I just can't even, I don't want to leave. I can't, I, I don't want to move. And both Dr. Cuddy says, came from a desire to escape. We just want to tap out. That's language that uh, Dr. Brittany Brown uses. This itch, this burning desire to just tap out and say, I want out of the ring. I don't even know what that would look like. I don't know what it means. I don't know if it means leaving the country, leaving the world and going to Mars. I, I, I just, I want to tap out. Either tap out and close down or tap out and run away. All of this stuff is happening to all of us humans. 
this is just how human beings function in really uncertain times. So with that on the back burner of understanding, now I want to move in a little bit to uh, understanding how we navigate stress and in particular sort of the cycle of stress and how those cycles of stress can lead to burnout. This work is coming from the Nagoski sisters. So um, Emily and Amelia Nagoski recently wrote a book called Burnout. So yay Nagoski sisters for (laughs) helping us out there because many of us are feeling burned out. And just really quickly, uh, the definition of burnout, there's three components involved to this. On the one hand, there's exhaustion. So it's physical, emotional, intellectual exhaustion. Just the feeling like there's no more reserves of energy. The second piece is a cynicism. It's harder to give people the benefit of the doubt. There's a sense, you know, like a lot of people will say, just assume best intentions. You know, assume it was just a misunderstanding. And when burned out, it's harder to do that. It's much easier to um, interpret other people's actions in the worst possible way. So there's this cynicism, this sense of everyone's out to get me, or at the very least, you are out to get me. And then the third element is kind of like a hopelessness, a sense of this is never going to end. Kind of like a, yeah, I live here now. (laughs) This is my life. So this is burnout. You got to have all three. So if you just have exhaustion, but there's still a sense of optimism, it's still a capacity for, you know, assuming best intentions, that's not burnout. That's just fatigue. It's probably very genuine fatigue, but it's not burnout. Burnout needs all three of those things. So what is it that causes burnout? The simpler way of doing this is that in general, when we experience any stress at all, there's three components to completing what's called the cycle of stress. There's the stressor. So something in our environment comes in. Then we do some kind of a regulating action to deal with whatever the stressor is. And then we go back to baseline and are prepared for the next stressor to come into our our environment. So the story that the classic story that's often given is I'm out in the jungle, I see a predator, and the predator's about to pounce. So the I see the lion, the lion sees me, and I think, oh, not good. <laughs> so my body responds. It pumps out adrenaline, and adrenaline makes my heart rate go up. I start pumping out cortisol. And cortisol sends sugar, i.e. energy, into my bloodstream. And that sugar or energy floods my extremities and prepares me to do something. Either I'm going to try and fight the lion, which, please, or I'm going to run like crazy to try and get away from the lion, which, I mean, I'm five foot three. I've got a fairly small frame. You best believe I'm running. (laughs) So... Either way, the cortisol has served its purpose and sent out all of the energy reserves that I need. All right, so I decide to run and I tear, just tear through the jungle. And in this story, I have a friend who lives in the jungle and I run like crazy toward her little, you know, cabin. Fortunately, as I'm running toward her cabin, she sees me and she sees the lion chasing me. She goes, oh dear, that's not good. So just in time, she opens the door, swings it open. I 
race in. She slams the door behind me and I'm safe. Oh, hallelujah. <laughs> I made it. And I jump for joy. I hug my friend filled with gratitude. I stick my tongue out at the lion who's now pacing back and forth in front of the front door and eventually loses interest. And I go back to baseline. Okay, but why did I go back to baseline? What are all the things that happened? First, that adrenaline and cortisol that pumped through the system, I used it. I ran. The act of running helped burn off all of that excess energy. Then when I got to safety, got to slam the door behind me, I clung to my friend filled with gratitude. That produces oxytocin, which is a cuddle hormone, a relaxation experience. It just I feel flooded with warmth and uh, compassion and, and gratitude. So my entire system has all these different cues that it's reading from my environment and, and that I've now helped facilitate to come online because of my actions. <sighs> all right, I'm ready to take on yet another challenge. I, I live to fight another day. That is a healthy stress cycle. In our modern day society though, and this is not even with a pandemic, just in general in modern day society, what often happens is their stressors come online. Our bodies still respond to those stressors in ways that they've been evolutionarily designed to do, but I don't do the regulating action. So I have this incomplete stress cycle. And so I don't end up burning off the stress hormones. As a result, it's stuck. I'm just marinating in it. I didn't burn it off. So all of these stress cycles, these incomplete stress cycles, start to get stored up in my system. Once that happens for long enough, my body gives up. Not gives up as in just completely malfunctions and, and, and dies, but gives up in so much as my adrenal glands get fatigued enough that producing the stress hormones to keep me vigilant is just harder and harder to do. And then there's that burnout piece that comes in, which again has those three features, exhaustion, cynicism, hopelessness. I'm just burned out. I got nothing left. That's where it's like, I'm tired, but I'm wired. I'm absolutely exhausted, but I can't seem to get a decent night of sleep. I'm constantly on edge, and yet I can't seem to muster the energy that would be required to even take a walk. It's every muscle in my body is tense all the time, and yet there's not anything I can point to to really identify and say, that's it. That one thing is the reason for all of my pain. Can you imagine, with all of these things happening now, why it would be the case that we are all so dang tired? We've had stressors, so we watch the news. We've got a pandemic going on. There's the political divide. There's the uncertainty coming online. And, pause. The uncertainty part is another piece I want to bring in and just kind of insert for a second. Uh, I believe it was uh, Dr. Pauline Boss talked about this concept called ambiguous loss. Now, most of the time, ambiguous loss is used when talking about taking care of a person, particularly someone who's kind of gone, but not quite gone. So taking care of someone who has dementia, we often experience this ambiguous loss. On one hand, she's still here, but on the other hand, 
She's not the person I know. She doesn't know me. So that can be a very particular kind of pain. It's ambiguous loss. I'm not given an opportunity to truly grieve, and yet I'm perpetually grieving. This sort of label is now being used to describe our our circumstances more broadly. Like on the one hand, as it relates to ambiguous ambiguous loss, we've we're grieving. We're grieving a way of life that we got cozy in, we got used to. We're grieving our routines. We're grieving our admittedly false sense of security because, I mean, you know, we never really know what's going to happen, but we had enough predictability in our environment, often enough, that we felt like we had some measure of agency and our, remember, predicting brains that were desperately going back to the, our past to, tr- to use information to help us predict the future. Those systems were working really well. We could predict what's going to happen even seasonally. I mean, look at the massive fires that are happening in our environment and, you know, ice storms. Like our climate is also changing in ways that are new for us. So even the weather is becoming something that is sort of, I used to have a lot of predictability. I I knew what to expect in September and December and April and July. (laughs) This isn't that difficult. And now there's less of that. I don't quite know what to expect, even as it pertains to the weather. I definitely don't know what to expect as it relates to this pandemic. And I don't have a whole lot of information in my past that I can use to navigate all of this. So I'm grieving, and yet I don't know quite what it is that I'm grieving. In many ways, my life is the same. For a lot of people, they may be living in the same place. They, they may even have objectively on paper the same life the same job the same spouse maybe not so I I don't want to downplay any real raw suffering that people may be experiencing right now that's material tangible you know the loss of a job the loss of a loved one you know I, I don't want to downplay that at all that may be real and raw and tangible and in addition to that there are some of us who in, didn't have a specific concrete thing change and yet there is this exhaustion that can almost be a lot more confusing you know when I lose a loved one and then I'm terribly terribly sad about it there's this melancholy that comes online that seems congruent I I loved that person and they're gone that makes me sad but that feels right Versus, you know, I, I'm still employed. I, I'm really lucky. I have family and, and everyone is fairly healthy. And yet there is this exhaustion. What's going on? So I wanted to, you know, I'll come back to burnout now, but I just wanted to bring that piece into the fold. Because again, with that ambiguous loss, there's this sense of a lack of closure. We're not closing in our own lives and on a macro level, the stress cycle. We're just stuck. Ugh. So, that brings me to, well, what can we do about that? Because this is big. You know, I can't personally go out and change our politics, much as I would like to. I can't personally go and 
fight every fire much as I might want to. I can't personally make a pandemic go away much as I might desperately want to. I can't do all of that. I can't make the world be other do I can't make the world do anything other than be a world. Our world is just being a world. And we've got to figure out how to maximize our experience in an unpredictable world. So how do we do that? <laughs> oh yeah, that. So I want to talk a little bit about that completion of stress cycling. These are evidence-based techniques that are known to help navigate or, or like complete stress cycles. First, before you just try and fix anything, acceptance is really, really important. So research that was done, uh, this was Todd Cashton, PhD, psychologist. He wrote a book called The Upside to Your Dark Side. Also, kind of piggyback on you this, uh, we've got Mark Brackett, who wrote Permission to Feel. And really, any lots of folks in the psychology sort of field will say there really is no such thing as a bad emotion. There's such a thing as an unpleasant emotion and a pleasant emotion. There are high energy emotions and low energy emotions. So we can certainly feel something and not like it, but that doesn't make it bad. And so a lot of times what we end up doing, this is now like a, if you were to place suffering on a chart for my numbers people, if you're not a numbers person, you can just kind of zone out for a minute here. If you were to place suffering on a chart, the way you might be able to do this well is you'd have on the x-axis pain and on the y-axis resistance to pain. So let's say that you scale both of them from 1 to 10. On a scale of 1 to 10, maybe I'm feeling pain that's at a scale of 5. It could be physical or it could be emotional. Either way, it's a 5. But let's say that I have tremendous resistance to that pain. That then would put me at, well, let's say my resistance is a 10. My suffering is the, the product of those two things. So pain at a 5, resistance to pain at a 10, my suffering is 50. I have a suffering score of 50. Now imagine that I've just reduced my resistance to the pain. So I feel pain and I'm just going to accept that it is. I'm not going to label it. I'm not going to fight it. I'm just going to accept, wow, this hurts. This really hurts. It's not okay. But you know what? It's okay that it's not okay. I'm just going to surrender. Surrender to the experience. That doesn't make the pain go from a 5 to a 0. But by taking my resistance from a 10 to, let's say, a 1, my suffering goes from 50 to 5. So this is often used uh, in the mindfulness-based stress reduction program as a model to track in a tangible way suffering and pain. So this is why I come back to this word acceptance. When I say acceptance, I am not talking about giving up. I'm not talking about, well, it is what it is, so I can't do anything about it. Sucks to be you, sucks to be me. I'm giving up. That's not acceptance. Acceptance is merely the ability to face what is on its own terms. So acceptance is this pandemic isn't over. 
period. Acceptance looks like I am still exhausted. I am still recovering from COVID-19. Like it's been months and I still don't feel 100%. Period. It's we are still wearing masks. Period. Or it's the government is doing something that I think is wrong. The government, not even wrong. Let's even retreat from there. Um, the government has passed blank law, whatever the law is. The government passed this law, period. It's accepting it. Acceptance does not mean that you don't take efforts to change it if you think that changing it is appropriate. It just means before engaging in anything to fix, it's looking at the situation as it is. Here are the numbers. Here's what's happening. Here's my experience. Here's my emotional landscape. Here's what I heard you say. It's just accept how you're feeling with no judgment. It's the ability to say, it's really not okay. But it's okay that it's not okay. If you're breathing, there's more right with you than wrong with you. So that's acceptance. And then once you're in that space of just, okay, here's the situation. Now, things that you can do to kind of move forward, kind of figure out how to navigate this world, given what is. The next phases are it will fill, figure out a value-based direction. What are my highest and greatest values? In my case, I'm a health educator, so I value health. All right, well, given that that's a value of mine, what is an action I can take that would be in alignment with those values? And this is important too. So many times we want to fix all the things all the time right now. And that's not necessarily available, hence why we get so exhausted and feel hopeless. We can look at seemingly overwhelming circumstances and then kind of dial it back and figure out, all right, well, I can't fix all of it, but I can do something. What is the something? Before you do any of the somethings, first, accept what you're looking at. Second, really get clear on your values. Do you value your family? Do you value your, do you value growth? Do you value health? Do you value stability? Do you value freedom? What is it that you value? And then take a, an action that is directly in alignment with your values and caveat here and an action that will not cause you or others harm. So important caveat, <laughs> you, you know, I, I might be feeling a certain like, okay, I accept that I'm very frustrated. My value based direct, you know, uh, I, I value freedom. And so given that I'm mad at you, I feel like I should have the freedom to take a rubber ducky and smack you in the face. Uh, no, <laughs> no, no. I don't care how you try and spin it. No. <laughs> So really it's accept what is, determine your values and take action that does not cause you or anyone else additional harm. And if at all possible, something that decreases suffering. All right, so now we've got kind of a general equation here, but what is it that is evidence-based and known to help us decrease suffering without taking away or adding the suffering to anyone else? Here are the things that tend to work. First, 
Um, cultivating a connection to something larger than yourself. This is a big one. I will say that for many people, this can be a religious practice, but it doesn't have to be. Um, there's plenty of agnostics, uh, atheists who feel very connected to things that are larger than themselves. Um, so religion can be a very nourishing way to connect to a thing larger than yourself. But other examples might be uh, connecting with nature. Uh, it might be that you connect with a larger philosophy, um, you know, environmentalism, stoicism, um, I don't know, <laughs> with some of the others, uh, existentialism, <laughs> whatever. It might be connecting with a concept. You know, I, I really value having a, a good work ethic, or maybe you're connecting with, um, you know, your, yeah, I mean, something larger than yourself could even be your family. What is it that reminds you that you are part of a larger system? It will make you feel less alone. So really connecting to something bigger than yourself. What is your something larger? Uh, another way of looking at this could be having a spiritual practice. This is often, they're often used in, in like as if they can substitute for one another, but they are a little bit different. So there's just a lot of overlap. Um, and the spiritual practice can be religious, but it can also be just meditation, you know, so which is not affiliated with any one religion. Next, prioritize pleasure, but be wary that it is truly pleasure and not just numbing or distraction. And this isn't to say that you don't get to numb on occasion either, but just it's a different thing. So pleasure is something that is nourishing. Numbing is something, so pleasure helps you to feel more. Numbing helps you feel less. So pleasure can be sipping a warm cup of tea by the fire. Numbing could be not paying attention while I stuff my face with all kinds of foods that I don't, I'm not even present enough to know that I'm eating. Pleasure can also be mindfully eating food that I have a very emotional connection to. So you can have the same thing and it, for one person it's pleasurable and for another person it's numbing. So it's not just the thing that's important, it's your relationship to the thing. I can pull out a delightful glass of wine and nurse it and savor it and enjoy it and think it's luscious. I've engaged in a pleasure a pleasurable activity. I can drink a whole bottle of wine and not remember having drunk it. <laughs> That's numbing. I can read a book that is sort of kind of helping me feel connected with a hobby that I take great joy in. Or I can read a book that is talking about the historical ramifications of our present day dilemmas and it's activating my system and it's like, it's exciting me, but at the same time, it's a, almost a kind of distraction. It's a numbing. It's activating me in a bad way. So it's really about prioritizing pleasure, not numbing. And examples of that can be, you know, taking a bath, eating a meal mindfully, uh, making a cup of tea, playing with your pet, hugging a loved one. Um, if this is available to you, uh, getting a massage from a loved one, or if it's open and you're in a space where there's, it's safe to do so, you know, seeking out the services of one. These are pleasurable acts. Next one, um, connect with 
your fellow humans. <laughs> so, you know, be really mindful of your relationships. Ask for help when you need it. Be willing to hold healthy boundaries when you need to. Um, another way of looking at this, you know, when you think about healthy boundaries, it's sort of like embracing your inner knowing, N-O-I-N-G. So being able to turn to people and say, I really want to help you, but I don't have capacity right now. I can't. And then likewise, be, when you do feel disconnected and you feel lonely, being willing to reach out and say, hey, I just, I don't need you to fix anything right now. I just want to complain to somebody. Can I complain to you for a minute? Or if in fact you do want a solution, you can go to someone and say, hey, I'm really struggling with this thing. I need another pair of eyeballs, another brain working on it with me. I think I've reached my limit <laughs> on what I can do to solve this problem. Can you help? It's what happens when you hug your beloved. So when you hug someone, remember when I talked about when in the, sort of the stress cycle, the, I'm running through the jungle and I get to my friend's cabin and I close the door and then I embrace my friend with gratitude. The act of hugging another human being produces that oxytocin response and can help really, you know, help me to complete the stress cycle. So that's a really helpful way of, of navigating just connecting with another human being is incredibly helpful. Uh, next, have a creative outlet. So uh, I forget who is, was that credit, who was credited to having said this, but it was take your broken heart and turn it into art. I know she's an actress, can't remember her name. I just know it wasn't me who said it. But it's, it, there's something about having a creative outlet. So much of the time that we are navigating the world, especially in, in times like these, we are using our left linear functioning brain. So that's our language, our rationality, our logic. We're trying to logic the heck out of our circumstances. And most of the time, that's really appropriate. But sometimes what we lose is, and now we're going over to the right hemisphere, that side of the brain is responsible for creativity, abstract concepts, um, and when we engage in a creative outlet, we kind of open ourselves up to a whole nother way of looking at the world and thinking, and that can help us access solutions that would otherwise elude us if we were just using linear thinking. It also gives us a, an ability to process through our emotions in a really healthy way. I can make something tangible out of what seems abstract and difficult and ethereal. Next. Nourish your body and mind with healthy food and healthy experiences. So nutrition is really important here. When you're working with burnout, a couple of things that can be really helpful. Uh, one, regularly eating protein throughout the day. And I do not mean that you need to get, you know, like protein. I, I'm not, you don't need to run out and get a, you know, Costco size of protein powders. I just mean in every meal and every snack, have something that's got, Protein in it, which can include nuts and seeds. If you are, so if you're vegan or just plant-based, nuts and seeds, uh, legumes, so beans, uh, to some extent, like, well, yeah, soy is a bean. So, yeah. If you're vegetarian, you can now include uh, some forms of dairy, so cottage cheese, string cheese, things like that. Yogurt is a great example of a protein source. Um, if you're you know, if you eat animal source foods, now you're talking eggs, meat, fish. Um, so it doesn't have to be any wild amount, but just an amount. So a hard-boiled egg for a snack. And then you want to combine that with something that's got some fiber, a plant. 
And by the way, if you don't eat this way all the time, you are not going to die. But it is generally helpful to combine those two foods. On the one hand, it can help you regulate your blood sugar, which can help you reduce your need for insulin, which is one of the three big hormones in your body. So like cortisol, insulin, adrenaline. If your insulin levels are fairly well managed, um, that can help give you the sense of more uh, alert and at ease and less of that sort of roller coaster ride. So examples are yogurt with fruit, chicken salad. Uh, you can have just some hard boiled eggs and a handful of carrot sticks. You can have, you know, a piece of whole grain bread and some peanut butter. I mean, we're not talking crazy wild here. And again, if you don't eat every single time, have protein and fiber, you're not going to die. It's just, this is helpful. Because from the protein, it helps feed your adrenal glands and kind of help regulate, give, gives you the amino acids you might need. And then from the fiber-rich foods, many of those foods also have lots of micronutrients in them, vitamins and minerals, and gives you some energy. So a lot of times the foods that have fiber also have carbohydrates, and they're going to give you a little bit of that energy kick. So eating in ways that nourish you. And I will say too, even if you're eating sort of treat foods, it's the holidays right now as I'm recording this, um, just eating it in a nourishing way. So sitting down, looking at your food, taking your time, savoring, really allowing yourself to immerse in the experience. And you'll notice I mentioned nourishing food and nourishing experiences. When your body is already feeling tapped out, not a good time to read the news. Not a good time to start reading historical novels. Yes, I did both of those things. No, neither of them were helpful. Um, it's probably a better time to turn it off and listen to some soothing music. Watch something that makes you feel warm and fuzzy. I don't know, like watch an absurd quantity of holiday movies. Like whatever it is, it's going to get you into the hmm space. And this is not to say that you just need to put your head in the sand and not look at problems. What I mean is when you're really burned out, that's a time to be very protective of your resources, protective of your energy. Not a good time to do social media. Not a good time to do, you know, again, watching the news. Not a good time to do activating things. Much better to instead do things that are soothing, nourishing. Next, uh, engage in something that allows you to grow, but on your own terms. So there's something about being engaged in something that helps us to grow, um, learning a new language, learning a new hobby, uh, doing a puzzle. So growth doesn't have to mean like, I changed careers. Although if you've got the energy for that, you know, good for you. Really though, it's just about doing something that brings you back a sense of agency, a sense of empowerment. Getting on an app and learning a, a language you hadn't known before gives you that agency. Being able to check off something on your to-do list gives you that sense of agency. So it's, but it's, you want the, it to be appropriate. So just like when you do a workout, you don't want to be doing sprints for a marathon run when you haven't been running even so much as a mile for years. Not good. <laughs> you're, you're overreaching. So you want to do something that stretches you, but it's the good kind of stretch. So next, speaking of exercise, exercise. It is so, so powerful. When I mentioned that story about me running through the jungle, the act of moving helps us get out of our heads and back into our bodies. It helps re-grant us the sense of, you know, that regulation 
all of that cortisol, that adrenaline, that muck that we're just stewing in, we use it and it legitimately clears the system out. So when you're starting to feel really disgruntled, irritable, and it just, it's like, wow, why was I so angry that they gave me two pumps instead of one pump of vanilla in my vanilla latte? That's not an appropriate time and place to be livid. There are real things happening in this world. This is not an appropriate response. If that's happening to you, it's a great sign that you should move. Move your body. It'll help get that excess cortisol and adrenaline back down and regulated. And once you've done that exercise, here's the other thing that it helps you with. Once you've gotten the cortisol levels down, because remember I mentioned burnout is sort of tired but wired. This is a feature of that pandemic flux syndrome too. We're tired, but we're desperately wanting to reinvent ourselves. I'm exhausted and I can't seem to get any sleep. When I move my body, I'm helping myself by getting that, the reason for the tired but wired is because of cortisol and adrenaline just stuck. I'm really tired, yes, but I can't go to sleep because my body is overriding my ability to sleep well because it thinks there's a threat that I need to be awake for. When I move my body, I get that back down and it sends a signal to my brain that, oh, all right, we took care of the threat. We're good. And so in a very physical, physiological way, I feel more at ease. That will then make it easy to do this next one, which is rest. Man, sleep is about the best vitamin you can give yourself right now. But rest doesn't just mean sleep. It can mean meditation, mindfulness, relaxation, And when I talk about sleep, what I'll say too is you want to be mindful of the quality as well as the quantity. This is not a time to say sleep is for the weak. This is a time to prioritize and protect your sleep. And if you can't sleep because you're too anxious, that is a great time to engage in some kind of a meditation or mindfulness practice so that you can at least rest even if the sleep isn't coming. And To that end, I will also say that the Community Health Education Center is going to be launching a mindfulness-based stress reduction class in January. So if you're listening to this, as I record it, it is the 17th of December, excuse me. Uh, So if you're listening to this and you are at all interested, mindfulness-based stress reduction is an evidence-based, as in tons of research have been done on this, an eight-week program. It was put together by John Kabat-Zinn. Um, and, and it's, it provides the resources, you know, people have seen reduction in chronic pain. They've seen reduction in stress, improvements in sleep, um, a increased sense of resiliency of, of strength, of capacity and ability to navigate a crisis. So you know how I talked about those three crisis phases, engaging in a mindfulness practice will help you to really flourish even in dark times So if you're at all interested in that or in any of our classes, mind you, let's say that you're listening to me talk about all this stuff right now and want to know more about burnout, we have a class on burnout. If you want to know more about mindfulness-based stress reduction, yes, please sign me up. I want to have support in creating a steady practice that will help me reduce my pain and help me reduce my stress. Come to the check. So www.salemhealth.org slash check, C-H-E-C, and click on classes, and you'll find a smorgasbord of all kinds of classes that are available to the community and that are aimed at supporting people through these really, really difficult times. So 
I know that was a lot. As I said, if you have questions, uh, again, www.salemhealth.org slash check. You're also welcome to call us. So our check line is 503-814-2432. Whew, that was a lot. So I sincerely hope that all of this was helpful. Here was my goal in this sort of lecture, if you will. Number one, if you're feeling crazy, you're not. You're a perfectly normal human being operating through extraordinarily difficult circumstances that we don't have any experience with. We're all just doing the best we can. Number two, <laughs> I wanted to give you some tools so that as, you know, you, number one, you don't feel alone, you don't feel crazy, and finally, you don't feel like you don't have any potential options to reduce the suffering. Uh, hopefully you're walked, walking away with some tools, uh, some sense that you can navigate this a little bit more effectively. But if you feel like you cannot, please, please reach out to the check. Uh, we're, we're in 8.30 to 5 p.m. Monday through Friday uh, and Pacific time. I hope you have a wonderful holiday season, whatever holiday you may or may not be celebrating. And uh, stay safe and be well. Mm-hmm.